Let me pray for us as we come to the Word of God. Lord, thank you so much for just us getting to be together today uh, to worship, um, to celebrate um, your glory, Lord, and your delight in having us a part of your kingdom, part of your people, such a gift. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that as we study the word this morning, um, that you would magnify yourself in our hearts, that we would have good direction from you as to what you would have us do as your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Text this morning. Sorry, stay standing. Almost there, I promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God told Abram, leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I'll curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. <laughs> I really love getting to preach the first sermon of the year, in part because it is not ever attached uh, to a sermon series. And so David offers me this date, and it's kind of a sermon roulette of, of some sort. Uh, just, you know, pick your poison. Here we go. Um, and the reason I love that so much is because I think about this sermon more than anything else, because it's normally just a reflection of what the Lord's been teaching me over the past year. And so I just get to put that into a 25 to 40 minute sermon, you know, for you all. Um, but this text, Genesis 12, has been on my mind for a whole year as we've been thinking about discipleship and the life of First Pres and our hopes for you, God's people here in Orlando. Um, and as we've been studying the, the Old Testament stories of, of how God connects with his people, um, and this story has particularly stood out to me. And so I'm very excited to get to preach um, from this text this morning, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you as well as we, as we turn our attention to the new year. So one of the uh, more profound moments of my year, uh, this, this past 2022, actually came in the theater. Uh, I went and saw Hamilton with my wife. How many of you know what Hamilton is? Awesome. That's really helpful because this will go well now because you know that. Um, so we had only seen it uh, on uh, Disney+. Plus. They, they recorded the whole show, and uh, we kind of slowly got into it. And Ash and I love music, and, and we ended up just really liking it. And so we actually were able to get tickets this year, and we were super excited about it. And when I watched the one on Disney+, Plus, there were a lot of characters that I really loved. Lafayette I thought was really wonderful. Um, I really loved Hamilton himself. But when we went and saw it in person, there was another character that stuck out to me more specifically, and one that I really loved, and it was George Washington. And um, if you've seen the show, you know that George Washington is this larger-than-life character, and Hamilton is, it's certainly about Hamilton, um, but Washington is, is incredible, right? He's just wonderful. And so the whole show, he's, he's kind of built up as this paragon of wisdom and, um, and truth and goodness, and he's kind of always the, the calm, cool, collected one when Alexander Hamilton's kind of you know, losing his mind and doing whatever else. So about two-thirds of the way through the show, um, it's time for George Washington to say goodbye, is, is the song that he sings, teach them how to say goodbye. So he brings Hamilton into his office, and he says, I'm going to step down. I'm not going to run for president anymore. The nation needs to stand on its own, right? And it's going to invite more people to come and, and lead, basically. He's like, I, if I don't ever leave, then it'll all be about me, and it needs to not be about me wonderful sentiment, right? So he sings this 
beautiful song that tells the narrative. It tells the story, and he wants to talk about all the things that he's accomplished and all the things that he's learned and all the ways that he's hopeful for the nation moving forward. And it, it ebbs and flows between grand music and soft music, and there's a humility about it as well as a wonder about it that's just drawing you in, and you can feel it in the audience, like, that it's building, and everyone's really pumped about this song, right? Even though it's kind of sad. And by the end of it, he sings his final note one last time, and everyone in that place stood up and applauded him. And it didn't stop for a while. <laughs> this is like a Sunday afternoon show, I think, or maybe Sunday evening show we went to. But everyone erupted at the performance, right? That's what it was about, just the singing and the dancing and all that. That's what they were excited about, right? No. <laughs> he was an incredible performer, and the music that he sang was beautiful, and the notes that he hit were incredible, and the moment itself was, was spectacular in the theater. But we also were, in some sense, trying to tell real George Washington, well done. Do you know what I mean? Like, we watched that show, and however much of it is, is historically accurate, I don't know. It's the theater. Chill out, right? But it was wonderful. And I realized, I was driving in my car the other day, and that, I had Hamilton soundtrack playing, and that song played through, and it struck me why, why that moment felt so important that night in the theater. It was because we wanted to be able to communicate not only to that actor, but to George Washington himself. Well done. A beautiful life you've lived. Incredible, courageous, wise, humble. You've done it. And here's what I realized. I hope that that's the kind of life all have lived. I hope that not, not at my funeral that there would be any sort of standing ovation, but that would, people would look at that life and say, wow, what a beautiful life. A life well lived, a life worth living. A life that mattered, not in the sense of starting a nation, but in the sense of faithfulness, goodness, truth, and beauty. I want to live that life. I think we were all cheering because we want one day for everyone to cheer in that same sense for us in relation to the life that we've lived. Now, we come today to 2023, the first day. And that's kind of the question we're asking ourselves, right? At the beginning of the new year. Sorry, I left my water down here. I'm just going to grab that. We ask ourselves that question. What's the beautiful life? We might ask it in some unique ways. What's the successful life? What's the life that gives me the things that I want? But the question that's been sticking with me all year long is, what is the beautiful life? We've talked about it in terms of the good life before. When you just think about, oh, what, what would be the picture of the life I really want to live? And, and that idea of beautiful life has been sticking out to me. What would that look like? And often, when we come to a new year, we start to... Uh, how many of you have some regrets about last year? A few? There's only like four of you. That's not bad. You guys are doing pretty good. Some things you felt guilty over, some things that you wish would change, some things that you'd love to change about yourself, some things that were completely out of your control and you're really hoping that those things won't happen again. We come to the start of every new year and for some reason we think everything's gonna be different, right? What's the phrase? New year, new me. <laughs> Here's the sad truth, it's still you. <laughs> It's a new year, but it's still you. And guess what? That is, that's one of those things that should humble us in all the right ways, but also it should let us know that we're humans made with the possibility of, of growth and change. 
And so we should have some hopefulness coming to each new year. Maybe not the, the, the same scale that says new year, new me completely, but what if we had a vision for what God wanted for us in 2023? And in a way that would grow us in the likeness of Jesus, in a way that would offer rest to weary souls, in a way that might calm some chaos. What if we had a picture like that? And the truth is, I think we do. I think what we have in the Christian worldview and the perspective that God offers to his people is a way forward, regardless of what's happened in the past. There's always hopefulness of a, a transformation and a change because God doesn't take things how they were and keep them that way. He takes them and he transforms them, right? Scripture talks about taking dead things and making them alive again. Scripture talks about taking lame things and making them walk again. Scripture talks about taking blind things and making them able to see again. And friends, that's possible for us. And that's what I hope for as one of your pastors. Not that the change would happen overnight, not that you would have to become a completely different person, but that you would see a vision for yourself of transformation and growth and goodness and rest. And I think we see it, it starts all the way back here in Genesis chapter 12. So let's look at Abram's story. Genesis 12, the text reads, God told Abram, leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse, and those who curse you, I'll curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So this is just Genesis chapter 12, but a lot has happened so far. How many of you have read Genesis? Pretty crazy book. Did you know uh, that right after creation, within the first 11 chapters of what's recorded, pretty much everything that could go wrong goes wrong? It's like really dark, right? How long do you think it takes for us to get the first murder in the Bible? Four chapters? <laughs> That's not very far, right? Very quickly, we see that the brokenness in the world is consuming people to the degree, in fact, that the world is actually flooded in, in a, a response to eradicate the brokenness of the world in some sense, in the story of Noah, right? But even after that, even after this, this kind of show of power um, and hemming in the evil, the people are still broken to their core. And so what we have is a, a story just after that of the Tower of Babel, when the people say, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower up to the heavens. Have you ever said that before? Let's make a name for myself? Probably, to some degree. Bet you didn't build a tower. Maybe some of you did. <laughs> How many of you have built a tower, for real? Tried to put your name on it, right? But that's the condition of the human heart. It's a revelation to us about what humans are like. And yet, in Genesis 3.15, as a part of the blessings and curses that are kind of coming post-fall, what we have is a promise from God to the serpent. And he says, there will be a seed that comes from the woman, and that seed will crush your head. And what we know from that is that God's not going to just leave us alone. He's doing something. Even in the midst of the brokenness of humanity, he's still doing something. And so he shows up to Abram of all people, this nobody in some sense, in, in all of creation. And he says, Abram, guess what? I'm gonna make something of you. I'm gonna promise you something and transform you and change you into something wonderful. Here's what I'm going to do for you. So he says that in Genesis chapter 12, and then we move on to Genesis 17, and the promise is kind of uh, fleshed out a bit more. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you. I will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. 
You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. God outlines three things in this that I think are really important, and I think these are the, these are the kind of things that we need to set our minds on if we wanna see this picture of the beautiful life come to fruition in our lives. Here's what he says. I'm gonna give you my presence. I'm gonna be with you and I'm going to be your God, okay? Second thing he says is, I'm gonna give you a people. I'm gonna give you someone to belong to. Not only are you gonna have generations that come from you, but there will be a nation, not just nuclear family, but covenant family that are my people and they're your people and you belong to them and they belong to you. So I'm gonna give you my presence. I'm gonna give you a people. And then finally, I'm gonna give you a place to call home. You're not gonna be a foreigner anymore. You're not gonna be a wanderer anymore. You are going to have a place to be, to call your own. You will belong to it and it will belong to you. Simple things, but this is the stuff of the covenant. So we might ask ourselves the question, why these three things? God could have chosen anything to promise Abraham or to give him, but he chose these Three things. And so we might wonder, uh, is God like, you know these people, the Christmas gift givers who are very bad at it? Do you know those people? They're the kind of people that it's like they walked into the mall and they went. And then they picked that for you. And guess what? You have to open that. And guess what? You have to act excited. And guess what? You might even be wondering if it's for someone else because it doesn't make any sense. Why would I like this? Have y'all seen the movie Elf? You know what scene I'm talking about, right? Buddy the Elf doesn't know anything about gift giving. And so he sees a sign in a store that says to someone special. And he thinks his dad is someone special. And what does he buy him? Some ladies intimates. And the dad can't figure it out. Doesn't make any sense, not a good gift. But on the other hand, you know these people, great gift givers. You know those people? The gift that comes to you that you didn't ask for, and yet it is so spot on to who you are and what you love and what you're into that it's, it just makes so much sense. And as soon as you open it, you are genuinely kind of sh- like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I love this. And you look up and you know where to look already, right? You know exactly who gave that to you because they're great gift givers every year. They're always good at it. You know who's great at this? My coworker, Alexa. She is a phenomenal gift giver. So thoughtful, so kind, so spot on. I I love whenever I am am eager to get a gift from Alexa, because I'm like, what could it be? I know I'm going to love it, right? So do you think God's like the bad gift giver or the good gift giver? It's kind of a silly question, right? He's a very good gift giver, friends. So good. And this gift of the covenant promise to Abram and to his family and his descendants after him is not random. It's not chosen out of a hat. It's not spun around at a supermarket. It's intentional, and it's reinstituting all the things that made life good and flourishing in the garden. Think about it. 
What did Adam and Eve have in perfect amounts in the garden? The presence of the living God. He was with them. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He spoke with them. He gave them borders and boundaries of what to do and what not to do. He was thoughtful as their God. He gave them each other. Remember, the only thing not good in the garden. What was the only thing not good in the garden? That Adam was alone. All of creation is good and very good until Adam is found to be without someone in his image and likeness. And so what does God do? He gives him Eve. And Adam expresses a joyful poem when he finds Eve saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh at last. So God gives his presence in the garden and people and what? A place for them to dwell. The Garden of Eden, a beautiful place full of opportunity to do good work, flourishing, all sorts of wonderful things that are going on in that garden. So this is the same plan from the garden brought forward in time into a new covenant. And then we get to see it work itself out in the other covenants. Think about the story of Exodus with Moses right? They're brought out of slavery. They don't have a place to call their own. They are living under oppression, and God saves these people out of a land of slavery for his own possession, is what he says, and he promises them a land that he's going to bring them to. Presence, people, a place, or paradise, right? Think about King David, Finally, an iteration where uh, an Israelite is actually the king over a space and they live and dwell and enjoy the kingdom that David is king over. And he's constantly saying, I'm not the real king. God above is the real king. The Lord said to my Lord, all those sorts of things in the Psalms. But it's the same elements of the promise, presence, people, place. And then what do we find in the life of Jesus? The yes and amen that we've needed all throughout these iterations of the covenant to make all of those things more and more true for us. Think about the way that the person and work of Jesus transforms your engagement with the presence of the living God. What might've felt far off in Jesus comes to live with us in the flesh. The author of Hebrews has said, he was made just as we are in every way, but without sin. More than that, he reconciles us to the Father by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension and says that we are children of the living God. Imagine that. You have the right to approach the throne of grace crying out, Abba, Father. You know how you have that? Only through the person and work of Jesus. He's reconciled you. He's rescued you. He saved you. You belong to him but it doesn't stop there. Who else do you belong to? The body of Christ. He says, I did not reconcile you just one and alone. I've reconciled you not only to the father, but to one another. That's why Paul all throughout the epistles is begging the church to live an ethic of love that says we understand unity as a primary good, not individuality. We submit to one another. We show up for one another. We care for one another. We pray for one another. We meet each other's needs because we are each other's people. You are my people. Think about the way we baptize children into this church. We have families stand up here, and then we have you answer questions like these. Will you care for and love and pray for this family as they endeavor to raise that child in the likeness of Jesus? Will you? And you know what we make you say? We will. Why? Because we belong to each other, a people. And in terms of our place, Christ is going before us and preparing a place, but that does not mean we can't experience the goodness of a rich community here and now. Will the new heavens and the new earth be 
stupendous beyond our wildest dreams, of course. And yet here and now, we get to see the fruits of the kingdom grow up. Like the stories of exilic living in the Old Testament and the books of Jeremiah, where, where he says to the people, go and, and plant your families and plant your crops and care for those people that are there and marry and, and submit to the community. And as you flourish, it too will flourish. It's a beautiful promise. The presence of God, the people of God, the place of God. And then we go all the way down to Revelation 21. And I read this to y'all all the time because I think it's the most encouraging thing in the whole world and offers hope like I can't imagine. When we see a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making everything new. Do you hear it? God's presence, God's people, God's place. It's the same stuff all throughout. It's the same promise. It's the same vision. It's the same idea. It's the same plan. God has not turned away from anything. In fact, he has drawn closer to it and said, you are going to experience it in more and more fullness as you creep towards this great day. And often we look at these texts and we say, yeah, that's a really wonderful plan of salvation. I'm so glad God's going to do that one day. I guess I'll just hold on for dear life until then, right? But here's what I want to offer today. The more we lean into those three spaces, the presence of God, his people, and the place that he's called us, the more you will experience a beautiful life. What God made humans for in the garden is no different than what he made you for right now. These same concepts, and do they, do they go in different directions based on who we are and the roles we play and all those sorts of things? Of course, but they all really matter. His presence, his people, the place that he's called you. Think about his presence for a moment. You've been invited in. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, I think, described it one day as the door that had been coldly shut in his face was finally open and he was welcome home. I want you all to enjoy the presence of the living God. I don't know how to get you to do it. I think it's a little different for everyone, quite frankly. There are some songs that we sing and I start crying. And then there are some songs that we sing and I'm like, doesn't do it. That's not Josh's fault. It's not Ashlyn's fault. There's different things for us. It's, it's relational in its nature because that's how he made us. And it, if you know anything about relationships, the same thing is true, right? It's not always happening all the time, but there are moments that feel like they draw you closer. Friends, enjoy the fact that you are children of the living God. That he has not shut you out, but he has brought you in. You have a seat at the table. You have a place around the Christmas tree. <laughs> he loves you deeply. Enjoy it. Rest in it. 
But there is an embracing side to that as well. That you can make space for it. You can pursue it. God has not made himself inaccessible. In fact, he has drawn near that you and I have ways to draw near, right? We have ways to make time apart from the busyness and the chaos to simply read the scriptures. And I don't want you to read it so that you know it like in a headway. I honestly don't care about that that much if you can recite all the stories. I want you to know it because I want you to know the God who wrote it. He loves you so deeply. Make time, make time for silence. You know what's hard to come by in my home? I have a two-year-old. Silence and reflection. And when I get that time, I'd rather spend it doing something else. But it's such a gift to make space for it and to let the Lord speak to you. Like, let him speak to you, into you. Just, just move that stuff out of the way just for a moment. But, but it doesn't even have to be completely silent. You can, you can do it when other people are talking too. Make space to enjoy and embrace the presence of the living God because he offers it so freely. So freely. I, Jack, anytime I'm, anytime I'm uh, trying to focus on reading or something, uh, normally my son walks up to me with a dinosaur. Normally he's really into dinosaurs and he just plops it on top of whatever I'm doing. And it's such a helpful reminder, honestly, because what God would delight in nothing else is for me to walk over and plop a dinosaur on him. <laughs> And Jack feels all the freedom in the world to interrupt me. And the father is infinitely better of a father than I am. And so there isn't any interrupting. He delights in you drawing near. He delights in lifting you to his lap. He delights in you just spending some playful time with him because his presence is filling. Second is his people. I don't know that I've ever seen a greater void in this category than coming out of the pandemic, than what the world has felt. We are more lonely than we've ever been. We're more depressed than we've ever been. We're more anxious than we've ever been. And we're more disconnected than we've ever been. But it wasn't the pandemic's fault. We were doing a lot of that on our own. Phones, social media, work, whatever those things are, right? Driving us deeper and deeper into spaces of isolation instead of community. You need friends. And not just friends who look like you or ones you like. You need friends, different generations, of different abilities, of different socioeconomic statuses or whatever. You need people. That's a part of your discipleship. You cannot prioritize only the presence of the living God and expect to find the fullness and the rest that Jesus offers. Why? Because he didn't save you as an individual. He saved you into a community. You are the body of Christ. So enjoy it. Enjoy being needy. How many of you are needy? You're all needy. Stop it. It's like five of you raised your hands. You are. And guess what? That means you're human. Good. That's what you're supposed to be, a human. Now, show up to God and others with needs and enjoy the fact that they are willing to take care of you. You know who's never embarrassed about his needs? My two-year-old son. He's teaching me a lot. He is reckless with those needs, right? It doesn't matter what I'm doing. He thinks he matters. And guess what? He does. 
Draw near to people and it's okay to be needy. Ask for things. Draw near to relationships that reveal vulnerabilities that you can't do it on your own. I was moving a piece of furniture the other day. My neighbor looked over across the way. He lives across the street. Super nice guy. He goes, do you need any help? I said, nope, I got it. Then I almost tore my bicep. Because <laughs> it was too heavy. And I was too proud to let him walk over for five minutes and help me. That's a silly example, but we're doing that constantly, especially emotionally. We're acting like we can handle it all. And the truth is you cannot, you are needy. Draw near to people. It's good for your discipleship. The Lord made you for others. That's a part of it. And then on the side of embrace, show up for other people when they're needy, right? We had an opportunity to show up for someone on Christmas Eve because they fell. And we were worried they hit their head and we just wanted them to get home safe. And guess what? She felt a little embarrassed. She didn't want to be needy in that moment. And guess what? You don't get to choose as humans. Sometimes you're needy and you didn't choose it. But a very wise person looked at her and said, would you let the body of Christ be the body of Christ and let us care for you tonight? And she said, fine. (laughs) (laughs) And guess what? It was a gift to all of us, not just to her, because that's the beauty of community. Listen to what uh, Wendell Berry says. Oops, just my water, we're good. A proper community is a commonwealth, a place, a resource, an economy. It answers the needs, practical as well as social and spiritual of its members among them, the need to need one another. The need to need one another. It's a part of being in a community. And then finally this, place. You belong to a place. Our world is getting better and better at disintegrating us from places. Uh, Part of it is that we tend to look for work and things like that uh, by saying, what am I really good at? And then I'll go find a community that needs that versus looking in our own community and saying, what does my community need? Maybe I should get good at that. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not writing all that off as bad. Hey, if the Lord's calling you places and you're paying attention, awesome. But when you go somewhere, get into it. Meet your neighbors. Figure out what it means to shop local, like for real, right? Go to the local parks. Show up and and, and meet your clerks at different places and and try to know them by name. The whole world is pushing you more to isolation, more into individuality that says you don't need these people. The truth is we all need people, right? How many of you know how to fix potholes and roads? None of you? Me neither. You know what I'm super grateful for right now? the folks who know how to fix potholes in Orlando, because for whatever reason, College Park is covered in potholes right now. It's crazy. In the the most simple ways, we need people. And a part of our discipleship is to live invested in communities. And as those communities flourish, we flourish too, because we offer our whole selves in those communities. We've talked about this as missional living for a long time now in your families, vocations, and neighborhoods, but to move into those spaces with a passion, not only for Christ, but for the community to flourish as a whole. What a vision that is. What a good neighbor you become in all of those different places. So the presence of God, seek it, enjoy it. The people of God, seek them, enjoy them. The place that he has you, enjoy, embrace it. Dig in, plant your trees, right? Plant the oaks. Seriously, plant oaks. They're great, right? It takes forever. But what a gift and the shade that they bear and the way that they develop into a community. Do all of those things as a part 
of your discipleship. This is not the last time you'll hear about this stuff. This is a huge part of our discipleship vision moving forward is how do we see these three spheres all as significantly important in the life of discipleship. And so begin to ask yourself, of these three, where do I find deficiency? Where do I feel like I'm alone? Where do I feel like I don't have enough in that category that I need? And let's talk about it. Let's talk about ways to, to move forward in our growth and our discipleship in relation to the things that God has promised us in the covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with Davis, David and with Jesus and now in this iteration of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for uh, time to reflect on this text. We're grateful for our time together. Would you offer us a vision of a way forward into 2023 that has whole life in its view, rhythms of, of rest and work, of good community and people that we are cared for by and care for? Draw us closer to one another by, by making us okay with being vulnerable in the things that we need and the things that we think and the things that we say. Remind us of your presence, Lord, that you have not left us and you will not forsake us. And we are headed towards a vision of you descending from above and making all things new. Oh God, would you allow that hope to cling to the hearts of Christians, that cynicism would be shooed away, far away, and that hope would live and dwell and we would make our communities all the better because we are so tethered to the hope of Jesus Christ. We're so tethered to the hope of flourishing. Thank you, Lord, for, for this time. Thank you for these folks. We pray all this in Jesus' name.